0: "'Who is Aslan?' asked Susan. "'Aslan?' said Mr. Beaver. "'Why, don't you know? "'He's the king. "'He's the lord of the whole wood.' "'Is he a man?' asked Lucy. "'Aslan? A man?' said Mr. Beaver sternly. "'Certainly not.' "'Don't you know who is the king of beasts? "'Aslan is a lion. "'The lion. "'The great lion.' "'Oh,' said Susan. "'I I thought he was a man. "'Is he quite safe? "'I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion.' "'That you will, dearie, and no mistake," said Mrs. Beaver.' If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Many of you will know. That that comes from C.S. Lewis's favorite, famous, maybe your favorite, novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in which Lucy and Susan and their siblings unexpectedly find themselves in this unknown land on the other side of a magic wardrobe called Narnia. And they're very unfamiliar with this land. And they learn that the land is ruled by a king, and they have many questions about This king, this lion, and what he's like. There's something profound in this conversation Lucy and Susan and the siblings had with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They had to reckon and consider whether they would take them at their word or not, whether they would live in Narnia as if what they said about the king. Was true. In a circumstance that was far more real, obviously, and consequential, this is exactly where Jesus' disciples are as Jesus is preparing them for his departure. Will they believe Jesus? Will they take Jesus at his word about where he's going and even what he's going to do when he gets there? And so must you, and we're going to do that in John fourteen this morning, John fourteen, very next chapter from where we were last week, beginning in verse one, and I'm going to read through verse fourteen John fourteen one through fourteen Let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. I will do it well here's the main point argument I want you to get today: Be comforted, Christian be comforted, Christian. Jesus provides everything you need for life with and before the Father. Be comforted. Jesus provides everything you need for life with and before the Father. So that's what this is about, Jesus relating to the Father. We're going to see this in three different ways here. He's going to the Father, and he's preparing his disciples for this, and he first prepares them by making clear he, Jesus, is the way to the Father. He is the way to the Father, verses 1 to 6. Jesus is the way to the Father. So when we come to this text, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. He's done this with full knowledge that the hour is here. He has predicted his betrayal, his denial. And remember, Jesus is deeply troubled in his spirit. But so also are the disciples. So facing betrayal, facing denial, what will Jesus say to his disciples? Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Now ask yourself, who else is like this? There's only one person in that room who understands why Judas went out into the night who knows what Peter is about to do, who knows what's before him, and that one person is providing the other people the comfort. At every moment, he cares for disciples. He moves toward them. He cares for his friends. These disciples are confused. Their faith is about to be in complete crisis. And their teacher and their friend, Jesus, deeply troubled in his own spirit, comforts them. Let not your hearts be troubled. The strength of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus is seen in this. There is such a wealth of spiritual resources and riches in him that he's constantly moving toward and caring for his own. How troubled, deeply troubled, would the fully human Jesus be on that night? And yet where are his eyes and his loves, but on his disciples and for them and their troubles? He's trusting, he's entrusting himself to the father in Every one of these moments. And so, for Jesus in these moments, when there really was every worldly reason to fear, strangely, Jesus is free free to live, free to die. There's not one culture from which any of us comes that we do not admire the soldier who, in the face of sure death, sacrifices. His life to save his fellow soldiers. We, we do not fail to admire the, the one who runs back into the burning building to save those who cannot save themselves. And I want you to see, as you think about that, in the midst of this night, what separates Jesus, even as he's in the midst of his own friends, what he's about to do ultimately in going to the cross is in the place of. Those who apart from him are at enmity, are enemies with his father. What he's going to undergo in the next hours spiritually will be a depth of suffering and agony that no human being can fathom. His friends should be comforting him. He is comforting them. He is concerned for them. One of the ways that you know you're becoming more like Jesus is when you are more and more concerned for your brothers and sisters' spiritual good. When you start to see your life in the church and among Christians is not just about you, but about them. Are you concerned for other brothers and sisters in the church? for their progress, their joy, their their life in Christ, their obediences. Remember, Jesus is working out what his love looks like that we might know how to love one another. And this is what it's like. Don't miss who he's concerned for as he walks this dark road to the cross. So it's in the midst of his disciples, very weak faith, to the point that they, some of them will basically lose it, that motivates him to say very clearly in verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, the sense of this could be, you believe in God, believe also in me. It was true of his disciples, but he wants them resolved Notice, not just in believing, trusting God the Father, but in Him. So the comfort He gives to His disciples is to now start to reveal more about His relationship to the Father. He's comforting them with Himself. He puts Himself forward as worthy of their faith. He places Himself, shockingly, alongside God as one worthy of their faith on the level with God. And he's either this or he isn't. So don't overlook this. He's comforting his disciples with himself, and he's revealing to them the way to where the Father is. Now, before we moved here, and my guess is this is true for a number of you, we wanted to know as much about this place called Al-Kaimah that we'd never heard of as possible so we googled we read we talked to people who might know something about it some of you're traveling this summer my guess is you want to know about the places you're going to go what's unique about jesus he's going to a world where the disciples and no one has ever been he comes from that world he returns there access to that world is bound up in him how do you describe the place where god's dwelling is particularly located verse 2 he begins to speak about the father's house he says there's many rooms there he's speaking of heaven the unseen realm where God dwells. Jesus knows what that place is like. And he's using this metaphor of many rooms to to make clear there's plenty of room there for his disciples. To his disciples who want to go where he's going, want to follow him there, Jesus is revealing it to them. And he wants them to be very clear that His going means, verses 2 and 3, he's preparing a place for them. So see the goodness and the love and the glory and grace of Jesus and how he just continues to prepare the disciples. He has so carefully prepared them for the cross. He's loved them lavishly. He's doing this in the midst of his betrayal and denial, and now he is preparing Them and telling them he prepares a place for them after he departs. They can't fathom that this will actually be the case, but Jesus is beginning to prepare his disciples for this very surprising reality. His leaving the world will be to their great benefit. Notice one. Heaven here, where the Father dwells, already exists. Jesus is not bringing that into existence. What he's doing is preparing the place for his disciples. And he does this chiefly, fundamentally, by his death, his resurrection, and his ascension as the God-man to heaven. That's what opened heaven up in a new way. They will not go with him now. They ultimately will. And Jesus is promising to come again to take them to himself where he is. Now, what does that mean? He is going to come to them again after he rises from the dead, but he's speaking here clearly, which they will understand of the end of the age when he will come for all of his disciples from all time and all places. I think that for all of us, what we don't know about heaven or the world to come that we might want to know, Jesus does mean for you to know this, he will come and he will take us to himself and we will be where he is with him. What was his greatest comfort to his disciples for their greatest crisis of faith? Believe in me, you will be with me. I will come again to take you to myself. For all they didn't know, for all that would confuse them, they could rest and stand in those words of Jesus. He is going to do for the disciples what they cannot do for themselves. As you read this, Are you meant to think that Jesus is active or passive in his leaving the world? As you live in this in-between time, whose word will you believe? Who will you believe? Jesus is so clear. His temporary absence from his disciples does not mean he is absent-minded about his disciples. You can't follow me now, but you will. And what's remarkable is he guarantees this not by their hour coming to him and finding him, but by his coming and finding us and taking us to himself. That's really where the world is headed. Or it's not. Jesus doesn't only reveal where he's going. He tells them the way to get there. Despite what they think, verse 4, they know the way. It's Thomas now who speaks up, verse 5, who says probably what everyone was thinking. If we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? Well, Jesus has been saying this, but they don't understand. They, the disciples continue to think about the world in terms of what they see. And Jesus means for his disciples to think beyond this world to what we don't see. He means for his disciples to understand that you know the way because you know me. Simply taking me at my word, trusting me, that's enough. And so it's in response to this that Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way to the Father. Why can he say that? Is that true? It's his saying that he alone is the way to the Father that he's emphasizing. He can say he is the way because he is the truth. He is the life. Who is Jesus? As the truth, he is the ultimate, he is the supreme disclosure of God to the world, who only says what God says, who only does what God gives him to do. He does not lie. D.A. Carson so famously said, he narrates God. Truth is not a thing, a concept. Truth is a person. As the truth, Jesus is God. He is the true way. And he is the life. He has already in this gospel in chapter 5 spoken of his authority. Shockingly, he has said he has life in himself. And so he has authority to give life where there is no life. He is the Living way. And notice his, his emphasis here is not to command or call the disciples to follow him along the way, but to come to him as the way. Because there is no other way to the Father except through him. Now, in saying this, Jesus is very clearly making an exclusive claim about who he is. He is not one among many. He is the one to the exclusion of the many. Why can he say this? Because he's the only one who's come from the father and returns to the father. He is the only unique divine son who is worthy of belief with the father This is the good news that Jesus has made known to the world for which he was crucified, but which he was vindicated in through his resurrection. God attests to the world, this is my son in whom I am pleased, whose works and words you can believe. So his exclusive teaching about himself cannot be separated from his work and person to save. How does he love this world? He loves this world by coming into this world and living for the sinful human beings of this world and dying. He alone, as the way, accomplished salvation. He alone fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law and then died for and in the place of many who by our lives could never, ever offer up to God a righteousness of our own that is worth Anything. He's taken sin that we might be credited with righteousness. And it's the resurrection of Jesus in which God says to the world, He accomplished salvation. What He said to the disciples that night, He says to you, believe in God, believe also in me. Leave any other way that you're trusting, that you're following on, and come to Jesus, who is the way. Which way are you on for salvation? Jesus alone is the way. And that changes your perspective. Some of you have grown so used to hearing that you've lost all sense of awe, reverence, adoration. In this reality that by faith in Jesus, nothing in the world will stop you from going to where the Father is. That it doesn't depend on you finding the way, never missing a turn. It does not depend on you never failing. It depends completely on Jesus. Finding you, taking you to himself. Now, You you might, as a Christian this morning, trusting in Christ, think that my faith is so weak, or you might be pretty confident your faith is strong. But that is not the point. The point is the one in whom your faith rest. Jesus is saying, I am eternally strong enough to uphold your faith. And that means one day you will be with me in the Father's house. If Jesus has left to prepare a place for his disciples, you can be sure it will be worth it. Whatever you've sacrificed and lost, whatever cost you've counted, when you get there, whatever you miss out on this world, you will not miss out in the world to come. I mean, if Jesus is the way, consider how that changes next week in your life. Consider that's going to change your life over a lifetime. That while your, your life is strange in this world, in the end, your life will have proven to be wise. See present faithfulness in light of the great end of Jesus coming. As you think about wisdom, assess what is wise now in view of then. Jesus is the way to the Father, and he will take his own to where he is. Second, number two, Jesus is the witness to the Father. Jesus is the witness to the Father. Verses 7 through 11, he uniquely witnesses to the Father. And there in verse 7, he begins to reveal how he uniquely relates to the Father. Verse 7, if you'd known me, you'd have known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So it's not just through the way, through Jesus, that one comes to where the Father is. It's by knowing Jesus that one knows the Father as well. When he was in his incarnated state in the world, he only did as the father directed him. He said what the father gave him to say. And he's saying, if you know me, you know my father. You've seen the father. What does Paul say? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the disciples are trying to put all of this together. For the next days, they will understand more. But he means for all of us to see that he is uniquely the one who discloses the Father to the world, what he's like. So he says, if you know me, you've come to know the Father. I think it bears repeating what Michael Reeves has so famously said. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus Christ. Because it can be easy to have kind, loving thoughts of Jesus, hard thoughts of the Father. And he's correcting any idea that somehow he and the father are at odds with each other, that the son is willing, the father is more severe. There's no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. Now, any parent here knows that the last thing you would ever want for any of your children is to doubt your love for them. We don't want them just to know it. Kids, listen, we want you to be confident in it. And we want them to know that we love you for who you are as our son or our daughter, which will never change, not because of what you do, which will change. I wonder if you as a Christian need an adjustment in the way you see your father this morning. What makes you doubt right now? He loves you. He's for you. Listen to Jesus. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. You've seen him. John Owen writes, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. But Philip doesn't understand. Verse 8, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Now, Philip here is extraordinarily bold. This is a big ask. The prophet Moses, as he interceded for God's people in Exodus 33, he asked the living God, please show me your glory. To which the Lord responded, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face. And live. To see the face, the full glory of God, is too great for us, for who we are as fallen, sinful creatures. It's why the Lord graciously told Moses, I'm going to hide you in a rock when I pass by you. He was mortal, he was fallen, the great prophet Moses. So he could not see God's face and live. And so here's Philip. Hearing Jesus speak of this unique access he has to the Father, and he wants that access. He misunderstands. And he does not understand the greatness of the one in front of him who he sees. Remember how John began this gospel? Before the drama unfolds, he took us behind the scenes in chapter one so that we would see that Jesus, the Word made flesh, verse 18, is the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made the Father known. And Philip here is in the middle of the drama, the action, and he's not understanding. He's looking at the very one who, God in the flesh, is disclosing the Father to the world. He's not seeing the privilege of what he sees in Jesus. We're no different. We underestimate what we see in God's Word. We underestimate, think of this, one day, this is what we confess and believe, Jesus is going to fit us in bodies in which we are able to see God's glory and live. But for now, He calls us to live by faith. As we hear the Father and the Son proclaimed, knowing one day this faith will turn to eternal, Sight. Jesus is perplexed by Philip. He's seen him. He's heard him teach. He's seen the works. He should have understanding. I think there's a a twinge of sadness in verse 9 when he says, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Remember, familiarity with Jesus does not mean that you have perceived who he is, that you've seen him. And familiarity with Jesus can mean that you have lost all your sense of awe and reverence for who he is. Philip is misguided. He wants some direct vision when he doesn't understand what he sees in Jesus. Now, you know this. You know how easy it is to just take for granted what is so precious to you in the world, to lose sight of what you have. Until that moment, you lose it. How much more with Jesus Christ? Have you become so familiar with him that you've minimized who he is, that the, the privileges he's, he gives to you? Jesus means for Philip to see his witness to the Father is because of his unique relationship to the Father. Verse 10, do you not believe I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is placing himself alongside the Father because he is saying he and the Father have one one being, one will, one essence. He's unpacking the way he relates to the Father within the triune Godhead. And he's saying there is this mutual indwelling. Each person of the triune God is fully God and there is complete unity between the Father and the Son. He's about to teach on the Spirit such that the only difference that we would understand in what the the Father and the Son is, the Father does as Father and the Son does as Son. Now, in other words, he is helping us understand that The persons of God are distinguished by their persons, not by their being, not by their will. Let me try to help you understand this. If I were to bring two or three up of you up here right now, you would have two or three beings, two or three wills, two or three essences. With God, the son, God, the father, God, the spirit. There's one. Now, There's many reasons that this is important for us to confess and and uphold, but how does this relate to you? How does this relate to Philip? Because in Jesus, as the word made flesh, the father is uniquely related to him, he to him. And because they mutually indwell each other, you can be confident that to see the son is to see the father because there's one essence, one will, one being. That Jesus is not in this world as an independent agent. He, verse 10, speaks the word the Father has given him. He does the work the Father does. So he alone bears witness to the Father. Now, here's some bottom shelf takeaway for you the privilege that you have in being united to the Son. You can't see that with your eyes, but it does not make it. Any less true spiritually that by union with the Son, in fact, you know union and communion with the triune God of the universe. In salvation, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit acted together to bring you and me, mere mortals and sinful ones at that, into their life that they have known from all eternity. So that should raise your view of what salvation is. That should give you joy when you think of the union you know in Christ, the communion you know with God. That should make you pray more. I mean, that should cause you to rejoice that who you are in the universe in reality has changed in this way should change the way you're seeing any current trial in your life. That's going to pass. Who you are in Christ, this status you have, will never pass. For now, Philip sees in a very blurred vision. The coming of the Spirit will soon take all of that away. Jesus means for Philip to simply take him at his word. And he means that for you. Philip is misunderstood, and so what does Jesus end up saying at the end of verse 11? Or else believe on account of the works themselves. He's pointing to the miracles. He expects for Philip to think about the signs he's done. Philip, who can raise the dead? Who, who changes water into very good wine? Who opens the eyes of the blind? Philip, isn't this what you expected when the kingdom of God comes? Who do you think I am? Who do you think I'm bearing witness to? I'm not just the way. I am the unique witness to the Father. And his going away is good, number three. Number three, because Jesus ensures or guarantees we will do greater works because he goes to the Father. Greater works because he goes to the Father. And that's 12 to 14. So he's the way. He's the witness. And we do greater works because he goes to the Father. Aware of the disciples come. He's told them, you, you cannot go where I'm going. You will go. He's preparing a place. He's, he's putting all the pieces together that help his disciples to see this is leading somewhere. It's leading to greater works because I'm going to the Father. What does he mean? How does he go to the Father? He goes to the cross and he's raised from the dead, and he's exalted. And he's saying that on the other side of that, the world will be a fundamentally, cosmically different place. God the Son who leaves the glories of heaven will go back as the Son of God in power, in glory, to heaven. He will return as God the Son, but he returns in a resurrected, glorified body, having Finish the work of salvation. This has massive implications. It's why he can say, you who believe in me will do greater works. What is he talking about? I do not believe he's speaking about miracles or signs. He's already raised Lazarus from the dead. He's already opened blind eyes. He's declared himself to be God himself, worthy of faith. I think he's speaking of the powers the glories of the new age the resurrection will usher in when he goes to the father and they give the spirit what he has done comes into full full view and think of this in his own lifetime this messianic community was very small it's about to increase all over the world And then the greater nature of the works is reflected in the greater nature of the proclamation that will soon increase. John the Baptist proclaimed who Jesus is and what he will do. The apostles proclaimed who Jesus is and what he has done. Salvation will not be a future work, but a past one. What is proclaimed is greater. And so the church from Pentecost to, Ford will do greater works by the power of the Spirit who mediates to the world the power and the presence of Christ as the living and risen Christ is proclaimed to the world. But only if and because Jesus goes to the Father. I firmly believe that the ascension of Jesus is either too often left out of the gospel or it's just tagged on and no one gives all, No one. Few give thought to what it means. But notice for Jesus, these greater works depend on it. He's going back to the Father as the Son of God in power to represent his people, to actively rule, to bring about God's great purposes. The risen and ascended Christ is not passive. He's not sitting in heaven relaxing. Brothers and sisters, he's working. And so should we be. There's gospel work to do steadily over time. Do you think that the risen Christ has been passive or active in our life here? In our life together? Absolutely not. He's done so much. And I trust he will do more. But because he's gone to the Father, we have confidence to keep going and working for his name. That's the context for which he says in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I'll do. Father would be glorified in the son. Now, how many times have you heard that verse ripped out of its context? Divorced from the fact that the father's glory is at stake in the son who is now at work through the prayers of his people for good. Whose people now, because of his finished work, can do greater works. When you ask in the name of someone, you ask in a way that is consistent with who they are, their character. So to ask in Jesus's name is to first have believed that Jesus is the way to God, the one who has the right to grant you access to the living God of the universe. So this is about access. And then this is about praying in the way that Jesus himself lived his entire life for what will bring glory to the father and exalt the son. His going to the Father should embolden you to pray. It's meant to encourage us to give greater work to prayer. Doesn't it cause us as parents joy when our children just trust us? How much more when we go to the Father through the Son in this way? He gave His own life to win privileges unimaginable for us. Bold father, bold prayer glorifies the Father who delights in the Son, who loves the Son. He loves to answer. What does it look like to pray in, in this way? In the name of Jesus, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, make me holy. Lord, give me more desires for you than I have for sin. Lord, give me a deeper understanding of your love for me in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, build up my church, that person in my church. Oh, Lord, open doors for your gospel in this place and this city. Your prayer life is only going to be as big or small as you think of God. As you are concerned for the things of God in this world, take Jesus at his word and pray in his name for his purposes. It's only with Jesus that leaving his disciples will leave his disciples in a better place than they were before. It's only with Jesus that leaving the world means greater works in the world. It's only with Jesus because he is the only way and witness to the Father. Only by his going to the Father do we do greater works. He has gone to the Father. He will return. He will take us to where he is. But consider this in the meantime. You and I have full access to the higher throne where the Father is. That if you ask anything in Jesus' name consistent with who he is and his purposes, he will do it. How could Jesus give us greater comfort and greater encouragement? than that.